Welcome to Cultural Connections Lab. I'm your host, Dr. Kelly Forbes. We are here to talk with educational professionals around the world to impact and influence the education system as we focus on cultural connections and the education of multilingual, diverse students. We're excited to have you join us today, and we sincerely hope that you enjoy the show. Are you ready to take your school district to new heights? Introducing EduSkills, the leading software as a service platform for Title III and multilingual support in education. At EduSkills, we understand the importance of equitable education and empowering multilingual learners to thrive in today's classrooms. Our cutting edge technology provides school districts across the nation with the tools they need to enhance language acquisition, foster inclusivity, and improve academic outcomes. With seamless implementation and comprehensive support, EduSkills ensures a smooth transition for your district, empowering educators to provide targeted instruction and personalized support. So why wait? Unlock the potential of your school district today with EduSkills. Visit our website at eduskillsllc.com or call us now at 405-879-9898 to schedule a demo. EduSkills. Transforming education, one student at a time. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Cultural Connections Lab with myself, your host, Dr. Kelly B. Forbes. I'm so excited to be here today. I have a wonderful co-host with me, Ms. Martha Carmali. Let me introduce her real quickly. She is a first-generation Egyptian-American driven by a profound passion for education and technology. Having obtained a master's degree in education and currently pursuing an MBA, she possesses a strong academic foundation to support her journey in today's corporate world. Growing up bilingual, fluent in both Arabic and English, she experienced the enriching blend of diverse cultures and communication skills from an early age. This multicultural background has fueled her desire to make a meaningful impact in the education space. Beyond her career, she is profoundly motivated by the relief and the belief, rather, sorry, the belief that education has the power to transform lives and societies. And that is a relief. Yes, so thank you, Martha, for that. With an unwearing commitment to the advancement of education and ed tech, she aspires to leave a lasting impact on future generations, revolutionizing the landscape of learning and preparing the world for a brighter future. It is truly my honor and privilege to have you with me today and with all of us. Thank you so much for being our co-host today. Yeah, awesome. Thank you, Kelly. I'm really excited to be here. Me too. And uh, I also have the honor and privilege to introduce our guest today. We have our mutual friend here, correct? We're so excited to have our friend, Luis El Yafuri. She is a highly accomplished educator and the owner of Diversified Consulting, which is a prominent firm dedicating to empowering clients and their service to culturally diverse, linguistically diverse, and trauma-impacted communities. With an extensive background in education, Luis has authored numerous education-related feature articles and is excited about the release of her latest book, which is called Restoring Students' Innate Power, Trauma Responses Strategies for Multilingual Learners, which was just published recently in 2022. Through her consulting firm Diversified, Luis and her team offer specialized services that foster culturally responsive, trauma-informed, and linguistically affirmative learning and workspaces. Their expertise extends to addressing the unique socioacademic needs of refugee and immigrant youth, making a significant impact on hundreds of learners and staff across various schools and organizations. Diversified's comprehensive solutions include asset-based consultancy, action-oriented recommendations, interactive professional development workshops, year-long staff support partnerships, Title III and OCR program evaluations and compliance resolution, targeting content curation, workplace diversity, equity, and inclusion training. Her passion for education and advocacy extends beyond her consulting work. She is a sought-after speaker and facilitator for keynotes and professional development sessions, both domestically and internationally. Furthermore, Luis actively serves on the boards of the United Nations Association Denver and New America Schools. She has been a newcomer, classroom teacher, also has been recognized with several awards, including the Rodell Exemplary Educator 
Distinguished Teacher Acknowledgement from Denver Public Schools, Mile High Teacher Distinction, and Professional Fulbright Educator Recognition. If you want to get in contact with Louise, you can get her at at Yelafori, which is at E-L-Y-A-A-F-O-U-R-E, because she's active on Twitter, and also at the website Louise at Diversified.com. That is L-O-U-I-S-E at D-I-V-E-R-S-I-F-I-E-D.com. We will have those links for you in the description of today's podcast. That is a big introduction, but my goodness, the reason why I have all that in there is because I am so honored and in awe just to get to be here with you and your background, and I'm just so excited, and I want everyone to know of everything that you've been involved in because what you're about to share with us today is of the utmost importance, and this is coming from a valid, reliable source and an amazing person and human. Luis, thank you for being here today. Thanks, Kelly. That was quite the introduction. It's really an honor to be here and share this space with you. Well, I feel the exact same way. So I, um, I'm excited that you all are here today. You all, um, through your, your earlier conversation, brought this to light for me. And I receive, just for our listeners so you know, I sign up for almost everything possible to receive information from around the globe, um, and especially within the United States, about what's going on with our education system. I don't know how I've missed this. I truly have no idea um, what has been going on, but also life is busy. So I'm glad that you're going to be here with us today because it seems like we are about to have potentially a lot of funds cut in our federal program system that specifically helps support our diverse, emergent, multilingual um, students and families. What What's going on here? Martha, I know that you had uh, kind of brought this to, to, to the forefront to me through our email exchange. Help me out. Yeah. What's happening? It sounds like a code yeah. ready emergency. <laughs> um, I think we're, we're not trying to make people panic. Um, I think that um, you're right. This conversation um, and this idea kind of came from Luis, you know, sharing some of her knowledge and what's happening in the landscape. And um, for me, you know, I grew up bilingual, but um, not really um, up to date on the policies. And sometimes it's hard to, to understand. And Luis is, just does such a good job of breaking it down. Like, this is what's happening. This is how it's going to impact things. So this conversation started when I initially received correspondence via TESOL, um, letting us know of a bill that, it, that had advanced uh, last week through the House and Senate um, that was going to the full House Appropriations Committee, and it was really looking at cutting some pretty critical educational funding. So that looked at cuts of what I have on notes here, $14.7 billion below the fiscal year 2023. Um, and that would impact Title I, uh, LEA grants, and look at probably 2,220,000-ish, a nationwide reduction there. Um, and that's that with a would, B, right? Yes, billion. billion. And okay. what that that's significant because... Title I, of course, is kind of under that umbrella of Title III, and that would look to eliminate most or all funding for English language learners with a cut of a projected $890 million, um, eliminates funding for Title II. Um, there's some other cuts here. One that stands out to me in particular is $35 million, a 30% reduction uh, in the Department of Education's Office for Civil Rights. Mm -hmm. So that is really um, notable when we're talking about our newcomers, our multilingual learners, our um, DACA students. So those are the projected cuts that we have now. Again, we're not um, trying to fear monger here. These are um, projected, and this is what is being um suggested to go through. However, there's still time to get involved. So even in that email that I received, there is a link to be able to take action. And so what they recommend is contacting your senator, your house of representatives, whoever it is that is in your neck of the woods to make your voice heard in this, that there's still time uh, to be able to make some change here. The other one, um, that stood out in here was uh, cuts of $3.3 billion from the previous fiscal year for our unaccompanied children program. Uh, so again, when we're talking about um, individuals coming in, URMs and unaccompanied refugee minors do make up a significant portion of that. So that um, is certainly significant. Awesome. And just for those that might not um, fully understand the scope, can you kind of share... 
um, examples of how previous funding for our multilingual learners um, has positively affected students and educators in the past? Sure. So that funding is absolutely critical. It's non-negotiable when we're talking about supporting our multilingual learners. Um, now, the the past two years have been kind of a an interesting spot in that schools and districts in general have more money than we've ever had to be able to use for these programmings if you've had a Ukrainian student or an Afghan student um, so if you've had either of those individuals, you have received funding, your district has received funding. We don't typically have um, excess amounts of funding to be used for Title III programs, but this last stretch has been an exception to the rule. Now the pendulum is about to swing back the other way. As those placements are, are in, those students are already in classrooms, those families are received, and now those pools of funding will start to dry up or expire. They all expire September of 2024 if districts have not utilized those funding pools. Um, and then after that, it looks like we may run into some cuts. Um, Kelly, did you want to take the next question? <laughs> no, that's fine. I was <clears throat> So just as a reminder for any of our listeners who may not know, Title I funds and Title III funds are federal dollars that are generated to help with things such as um, uh, reading, professional development, parent outreach, um, language acquisition. It depends if it's Title I or Title III, but just the, the general idea is that these are dollars that help our education system. It helps with tools, resources, and knowledge in ways that we can partner with our communities and our parents in, in moving forward in the education system. What, what is so concerning to me is that from my experience in education, there's already, um, there, there's already a lack of awareness of cultural and linguistic needs for our diverse students, especially with um, our multilingual students, because it's both right there, right? You have the, uh, the, the academic side, um, then you have the English language acquisition side, while still maintaining and building upon your first, second, or however many language you bring to the forefront. I'm sure that you know, Luis, that there are consulting opportunities to work with schools and districts and leaders to help with that knowledge and understanding and helping them also figure out ways to utilize these funds. What I get concerned about is if we're already kind of in a situation of unawareness, what would that impact potentially even look like if we don't advocate for, for ourselves and for our students in this situation right now, whenever we don't have access to any more funds to even help spread that knowledge? and put that support in the classroom. What, what are the potential impacts to this? I think they're, they're massive. I mean, if we think about multilingual learners being the fastest growing population of US students, then it's impossible to have these conversations without also taking Title I and Title III into account. We can't move forward without those pieces in place. Exactly. And then also I get so concerned about the, the lack of funding with the Office of Civil Rights, because I know that, I mean, that office produces so much support and guidance and letting us know that, for example, whenever, whenever sometimes school districts don't even re realize that they should be having their school report cards in multiple languages as well. And I will say there's a lot of moans and groans when it comes to OCR resolutions. And that is one of the areas that I work most closely with schools and districts in. Um, but I will say the most robust programs and uh, states that are working actively in multilingual education have their process has usually been the outcome of one of those resolutions that they've really had to go back to the drawing table, figure out what's working, figure out what's not, figure out gaps. And those states, those schools make some really magnificent strides because they're forced to go back in and think about it. Iowa comes to mm -hmm. mind, um, Michigan, Minnesota, both. Um, there are a lot of states that they're here in Oklahoma. And in schools in, in general as well. Tulsa um, that mm -hmm. have had a quote unquote ding, but then because of that, have had to go back in and reevaluate and listen to a diverse group of stakeholders and figure out what's working, what's best for their families and what's not. Well, and then part of that goes hand in hand. And then Martha, I want to get your, your insight too. But then I think about, okay, like the districts that, that 
know and are trying, it's not that I want to believe that there are many times that people that they just didn't know, like, Oh, I didn't know. Or so it's again, trying to share that knowledge. And I think sometimes to us in the inner circle of Indies workings, we're like, well, we think everyone would know. Right. But some people just literally, they just unfortunately didn't know. And these fundings help support it. It is overwhelming. It's a lot of information, especially if you're coming in new and the changes are, you know, there's, there's, it's a continually changing environment to be navigating. It's, uh, changing in the way that we structure that. It's changing in our political and socioeconomic climate. There are consistent changes that we need to stay on top of. So just getting a baseline in there is hard enough without the Mm -hmm. constant evolution of what Title I and Title III are. Well, and then I think about some rural school districts that have one person as the assistant superintendent that has this, as well as assistant superintendent and three other things. And then maybe... seriously then they drive the bus later absolutely how do you keep up with that martha what are your thoughts about all this yeah so a few things kind of stand out to me i think the first one especially growing up first generation um you know my parents immigrated from egypt in the 70s um you know barely got through high school didn't know the language here and i just remember you know kind of the pressure from an early age to Go to school, understand what's happening in school, take that back home, translate it into a different language so that my parents are kind of up to date on what's going on. And then, you know, for forget it if there's paperwork involved. If there's paperwork involved, that's, you know, a five or six year old kind of sitting down trying to read it or trying to recap to their parents like, okay, this is what my teacher said in the classroom. This is what this form is saying. This is what you're signing kind of thing. And all of that to me, um, obviously, you know, we're hopefully we're pushing towards better uh, support there, but accessibility is huge, right? So, okay, Luis gets this email. She kind of shares it with me. I read through it and I'm still like, I've been in the education space. Like this isn't because, you know, I'm not in the space and I just don't know, but I'm like, what does this mean? Like breaking it down and making it understandable is a whole, it's a different part of accessibility that I feel like doesn't always get touched on. Right. It's not just, is that information available, but like, what does it mean? Um, so that's, that's really one of the biggest things I wanted to, to discuss with Louise. Um, but yeah, you made a great point about bringing that information home and working with your parents. And especially if it's paperwork, we had a two summer cohorts over the summer, obviously. Um, and we had teams of teachers from all over the U S and one of the questions was about this around this accessibility and problem solving. And one of the issues that came up was specific, specific, if I can get it out specifically with our Afghan parents. And so our Afghan moms in particular were being asked to sign pieces of paper. And the realization was that the moms were not, it wasn't just that they weren't uh, aware of what they were signing, which is not allowable as an OCR item mm-hmm. to begin with, um, yes. but that there were, there were some challenges in writing their names. Um, and so figuring out um, if, if you can, just taking a step back and recognizing that under the Taliban regime that these women were not afforded uh, the luxury of education. And so coming here and saying, well, sign your name, and that presented a challenge. So this group, uh, it was a team of three individuals, had gone back to their administration, and they were able to use some of the Title III funds to have a problem-solving, a brainstorming session where they could bring in multiple ways and creativity of working around this so that they could find ways to be to make this more accessible for those parents in particular. Um, and they're still working on that now, and I'm excited to see what they bring up. But they were able to use Title III funds because it is related to LEP parent engagement. And I, to be clear, cannot stand the term LEP, which stands for Limited English Proficiency, mm-hmm. because our students are not limited and our parents are not limited. Um, so when I say that, keep in mind that I'm using that because that's the language, the working language that we have. Um, but if if you have the capacity in your school or district, I would uh, highly recommend having some conversations about what other language you can start utilizing in place of that. But that yes. funding could be used for LEP parent uh, outreach and engagement. And I will say, I'll vouch that Luis was using air quotes 
lip. Yes. Because, yes, I'm with you. It's I'll right say it. There I hate it. I hate it. English I don't learner, hear it. which centers English in the conversation. And I'm so grateful to see so many schools moving toward things like multilingual learner or uh, parents of another language other than English or whatever they may be working toward that isn't uh, diminishing from the outside. And I love that perspective that you just brought across, again, the screen right to us because it's a constant reminder to always be thinking about that. And so I appreciate you reminding all of us. It's true. We, I was just in a meeting this morning and with that same conversation, someone asked, why, why did it change? And I was like, well, sometimes it never should have been. But let, let's, let's, decide, let's part from that. <laughs> Um, and sometimes it is the working language that we have. And so I understand that in order to have a conversation that everyone understands, sometimes we have to lean on the language we've always known. But that doesn't mean that we can't be collectively thinking about ways to move forward. Right. Um, we can't a evolve. lot of times in my, right, in, in my work, which is a lot of trauma-informed work, we um, lean away from the word resilience because of the way that we've seen it be um, sometimes weaponized against students are seen as a have or have not quality, especially with our refugee learners, even in the same family where, say, one individual from a family will produce as, again, quote unquote, resilient, while her younger brother does not. And so what does that mean? He lacks this magical thing and he's less than. So just looking at, in general, when we're working in the multilingual landscape, just having a greater awareness of the words and language we're using. We know how important language is. So just bringing more intentionality to that can be helpful. So I, I have to just bring this up real quickly because everything that you're saying, I'm just like soaking all of it in. So having just finished my dissertation on this topic of cultural proficiency, like, I mean, this is, so I wanted to ask this er earlier, but I'm so thankful for the conversation that we've had, but in, in the conversation about these federal funds and in the, and how we're, you're making direct connections and how those federal dollars are helping students and families understand I'm hearing this theme that is all connecting back to culture. So I don't, no one wants to hear from me right now. What are these connections to culture uh, that we're actually making right now? Can you, I'm sure that they're stood out to both of you, uh, Luis and Martha. So how, what role is culture playing all this? Because it sounds like a lot. It's the center of everything because culture mm. is identity. Culture is identity. And yes. so we, in order to understand, if we keep having these conversations about the whole student, the whole student, who is the student? That's their identity. And we have all these aspects yes. of identity, right? But cultural identity for our immigrant, multilingual, newcomer students is at the crux of everything. Because for most of those individuals, culture is literally their entire world. So I'm going to just, we'll break this down super quick and we'll go this. through yes. but i'm just oh, going don't do to... quick oh this okay. is fire you're good <laughs> all right so yeah going back to we language, need to hear this i'm getting down to culture so just bear with me but getting back to language we yeah. use the language of identity so interchangeably and this is bothersome too it's problematic because all of these words mean different things so when we're assigning things to students or pulling pieces out or not understanding where culturally responsive teaching and learning occurs, it can be problematic. So we're going to start with that big bubble of race, right? Those tidy check boxes our students tick when they come in, they really don't tell us much about who our students are. Um, there's no clear definition of race. If you ask a gazillion scholars, they all have something right. else to say. Um, and we know that it's really an invented human construct, right? So let's dig down a little bit deeper. We get into this area of ethnicity. And ethnicity, we can think of as introducing an element of choice, more who we, who we choose to align with, those values from our background and our culture. And under that umbrella of ethnicity, we can have other things like language and nationality and heritage and culture. So if we think of race as sort of this external construct that can be placed on a person, and ethnicity is more of an internal construct that we present out into the world. Moving down, if we have race and Ethnicity, we can think of um, nationality, which is where a person holds citizenship, right, or holds a passport, or the place where they choose to identify with as home. Um, we have our dreamers, right, who have been here their whole lives, and they maybe say that the U.S. is their home, and they have every reason to believe that because we're under that umbrella of choice. Absolutely, this is their home, but their legal documentation might not say that. So we have to make space for that as well. 
So we have race and ethnicity and heritage or nationality. And then heritage, um, I tend to think of as our link to our more distant ancestors, right? So for those of us who have been in the States for many years, that's pretty broken. I'm predominantly Irish. I don't speak Gaelic. I don't don't know any Irish foods. I've never been to Ireland. But we have little tokens of pride in our house, right? Those little flags or a cup holder or something that we'd have in our home. For Martha, your heritage connection is really robust. It's really strong. And for many of our multilingual newcomers, that's also the case. My own children, whose father's Lebanese, they eat Lebanese foods. Arabic is their first language. Um, we, they practice Aid, they practice Ramadan, they live in Lebanon for part of the year. Their link is intact. So again, for many of our multilingual newcomers, that heritage link is intact. And then finally, we've gone all this way down and we can get into this area of culture. And so all this work to get down to a space, um, I'll say if you haven't read Zaretta Hammond's book, she breaks down this area of culture so wonderfully. Um, it's culturally responsive teaching in the brain. Definitely a must read. Um, so we'll talk about the surface level culture, which are those things um, like holidays and flags and music and language and all those kind of surface level pieces. Digging down a little bit deeper in that sort of unconscious level, maybe your parents told you about them, but it's not necessarily part of the everyday. Um, we run into things here like um, eye contact for many of our um, East Africans, for example, that looking down is a sign of respect when you speak to an elder. And when we're here and that conflict comes in, right? Look me in the eye. This is a sign of respect. Mm -hmm. So if a student's looking down, we run into that conflict. Um, and then finally, in that deeper level, we have this collective unconscious where these are, are the really deep subconscious level. This is just the way the world operates. Things like um, how we relate to other people, concepts of individualism versus collectivism, um, concepts of saving face, where um, how you move through the world, if you how you act and present or quote unquote mistakes you make reflect not only on yourself, but they reflect on your family members. And Martha, from another out of family, I would imagine that there's some of that in your family, too, that you might be able to speak with it, how you if you get in trouble, it can reflect on your parents and your parents can perceive that as reflecting on the broader family name. There's a lot more uh, responsibility to the family in that context. Yeah. So that deepest level, we've gone from race to ethnicity to nationality and heritage and culture and the layers of culture. And that deepest level is the space where culturally responsive teaching and learning occurs. Those are those culturally responsive or those, those cultural reference points that we are speaking to. And so the challenge with schools is when our outgoing messages are in misalignment with those deepest level cultural references, there's going to be disconnect. So we're not suggesting that you overhaul your entire programming, but small strides to match where our students and families are can make a big difference. And I would guarantee that every educator who's listening is doing those strategies already. They may just not be aware that those are happening or how to link those together. Mm -hmm. That was a really long yeah, answer those, to that. No, no that's not that was, Yeah, I was like, going to say, Louise. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. I mean, I think about, you know, teachers who have done project-based learning, and that would speak to like a wander and explore. Teachers who have done things like numbered heads, where the responsibility isn't on one student to raise their hand. That speaks to saving face. Uh, classroom jobs or helpfulness or working toward a big project your class can do together. That all speaks to values of collectivism. So we're already doing all of these things. We're not asking teachers to add more things to their plates. We're just saying, you already have the tools. You mm -hmm. are already an expert. So how can you take what you already know and plug it in to fit your students and where they're coming from a little bit better? Yeah, yeah that's awesome. Um, Luis, I've never heard anyone kind of explain that the way you have. So I feel like I just like learned a whole lot in, in that little, like you need your own TED talk here is what I'm trying to say. Um, <laughs> no, that's awesome. And just kind of emphasizing too that, Whenever, you know, whenever our education system, whenever it's not aligned with the culture, with why that child is maybe responding the way they are or why they're not, um, 
I've heard my entire life, okay, kids are resilient. They'll adapt. They'll figure it out. And while there may be some sort of truth to that, there's it still impacts people. Like, it, it impacted me, right? Like, I understood that, okay, this is a culture and this is the way that American schools are. And I was a filter to my parents, you know? And I couldn't necessarily have the emotions that I wanted to have, right? Because my parents wouldn't understand or because my teacher wouldn't understand. And that that's a really kind of, it's a, it's a, it's a very hard way to navigate your life as a child. Um, and I think that just so being able to support, bringing awareness to that and being able to support a child, at, I don't know, what I'm trying to say, but like at the most basic level, you know what I'm saying? At the most basic level, that can be life-changing. And I, I don't know that everyone truly understands that. I don't know that everyone understands the the road, you know, that a, a, a multilingual child is, is navigating. It's a lot more pressure. It's a lot more um, emotional, it's, it's, it's a much bigger emotional intelligence at a much younger age. Um, yeah. So I don't, I don't know where I was trying to go, to go with that, but, um, I think it's important the alignment. I, I think that's hugely important. What a great way to say that about just the heightened level of emotional and you know, that awareness at an early age. It, what you're speaking to, makes me think of what we would call identity integration. And it's this idea that a person's two or more cultures can be compatible, that they can live together, that they can coexist. And research shows us that when an individual has achieved identity integration, that there are decreased risks for mental health concerns and and suicide and increased risk for prosocial behaviors and the benefits to that are amazing. And when we don't have that, we see also that that can create a lot of problems. One thing that just absolutely fascinates me about the idea of culture is that it can be picked up or set down by any person at any time, right? Um, And to illustrate this, I mean, maybe thinking about, um, I mean, I have gone through every culture there is in my like search to find myself. So I can name a few here. Um, You have cowboy culture, you have hip hop culture, you have deadhead culture, you have book nerd culture, you have, right, you can pick up any of these, you can choose to pick up. Now that also gets into some gray area. Let's go back to hip hop culture, um, where we can start to lean into things like appropriation, right, where we have to start considering where on which piece is tipping over um, past appro- uh, appreciation and into appropriation. Um, so when we think about picking up and setting down culture, that's something else to keep in mind. But culture can be picked up and set down by any person, which tells us that for our students, they're able to pick up the new culture, just as if we put an effort, we're able to learn about their culture and take some of that with us as well. And I know, I mean, Kelly, I know from your lens as an educator, probably very similar to mine. I feel like I've grown more as a human being by having been blessed with the presence of my students from all over the world. It's like having access to a global passport in a classroom, right? The learning and the the things that you, the ways that you grow in that time, if you're open to learning from your students is remarkable. I will definitely echo that 1000%. My, my, I was, I began in around 2008, I was an alternatively certified teacher. I um, was in a the same year. Oh my gosh! I uh, I I had a, I had the best classroom and my and the best experience. And to be completely frank, the most favorite position I've held of employment ever was being a sixth through eighth grade newcomer teacher. Yes. Repre- and the the class represented seven countries and eight different languages. And uh, just to speak to your point, I talk about them, I think, in almost every podcast at some point. Uh, I just remember them. For I have, sure. I have, I have their pictures up. I mean, they're just like that group, you know? Anyhow, um, but I told the principal one time, I said, if you ever come down to my classroom and you see me and I'm not teaching, it's because 
I'm not. I'm just learning. <laughs> and uh, and it was because wow. once a week we had a dedicated time where I would sit down and in any mode that, that we could communicate through technology, through acting, through their friend that spoke English, maybe a little bit more to you know tell me. Or if I knew, since I know Spanish, then I would try to help everyone understand. So we would, you know, use sheltered instruction. You know, I guess maybe there was more teaching going on than what I thought. But point is, is that it was time for me to sit because I wanted to learn from them. Some days we just cried. And, and remember, they're newcomer students, sixth, seventh, and eighth graders, all in one room, seven countries, eight different languages. Um, uh, uh, Chen and um, Karen were the two different languages from Myanmar. So we had all these, I mean, all this culture, we had one expectation and that was just respect. Because if we could just start from, you know, and be there, because there were different religions, cultures, backgrounds, food, taste, school, education. Did I have it? Did I not have it? I mean, coming, you, your experience coming to America, why you're here, um, not just people that, that, that came here because they, you know, wanted to, but because they had to, or because they were also refugee students. And, you know, they had all these different layers. I don't have those experiences myself, but I am so thankful honestly, every single day, because that was my first year teaching. It set me off. Like they gave me the best platform to try to become the most culturally competent and proficient educator possible. But you know, they also taught me is to how to learn more about myself, how to look inside of myself first, so I can be the best version of me on the outside for everyone else, especially whenever you're working with children. It says a lot about your teaching style and your willingness to build a a space that's full of trust and predictability and routine and those things that we know are so important for newcomer students and all students, because there's no way that I think those conversations probably would have been had if that wasn't the case. Well, I think I, I, to be honest, I mean, I was in show business. Like I was dancing a Royal Caribbean cruise line as a singer and dancer whenever I got into education by accident as a permanent substitute. So, you know, whenever you're in front of an audience, you just perform, you know? So I was like, well, so everything that we did was hands-on. Like I didn't know what I was doing at the time because you don't, you don't even have to be technically certified in this content area, ESL. I'm doing air quotes, listeners, right. um, for, for Oklahoma certification to even be in quote unquote again, ESL teacher. So, I mean, anyone could just kind of have that job, which is, you know, I look back, I'm like, that's insane. Like you need, you need to know so much this. I mean, I like our, I like where we're going with all this, but that federal funding, like that helped support training for me to get even better at what I was doing. But whenever I was just in front of an audience, I was trying to perform and trying to learn from them so we could all work together. Little did I know I was receiving the highest level of education that I'll ever receive in my life. It was not my doctoral degree. I'm thankful for that. My highest level of education came from sixth through eighth grade students. I 100% believe that. Yeah. So I was kind of hoping to ask both Kelly and Luis, um, just because I think you guys are way more involved and and see the landscape a bit more. Obviously, you know, our um, multilingual landscape has changed from when I was growing up in school. Um, so could you guys tell us a little bit about how um, how it's been changing, how it's been evolving, and where you kind of hope to see it going? All right, Kelly, let's go back to 2008. Here we go. So Here we go. 2008 was fun. 2008 was like, a, it was, ah. I also come from a theater and dance background. Maybe that's why. Maybe that's ah. why. We just, I we just like we, came straight in. Like, we're doing yeah, it. I don't, guys. Because See, Luis, I'm like, I'm just like passionate. got to say it and get into it. <laughs> because if you weren't around in 2007, 2008, so I came on board the first, it was the inaugural year of Place Bridge Academy, which is Denver's refugee magnet school and came on board as a newcomer teacher. I went back to college late because I was busy dancing and doing mm-hmm. kind of professional things. So right. I came back to school late, graduated almost 30, came into the classroom, and I can't tell you how vastly underprepared I was for <laughs> what I just walked into. There was, if you're, if you were recently graduated or if you just did a master's in 
culturally and linguistically fantastic because let me tell you none of this was going on <laughs> in 2000 we were winging it and it was great and it was wonderful and i'll tell you what i loved the most is the i wouldn't say lack of oversight is really the terrible choice of words but there was a freedom and the way that we were able to go about working with students that's oh great, gosh. but there's also, I understand, I do, I really understand the need for some structure and being able to, you know, build some consistency across the school, but the freedom that we had um, was was fantastic. It was also a curse that there were almost no resources. So right. in my classroom, for example, we had the regular grade level textbooks and I also had a sixth grade class and they were giving them like first grade books about fuzzy ducks. And I'm yes. like, they don't want to learn about fuzzy ducks. They're freaking sixth graders. This is not, this is not a solution here, but we just, we were doing our best. Now, when I tell you that I really like, it just sits on my heart that I probably just really failed a lot of kids in those first couple years. But we also, like you said, Kelly, there was there was trust. There was learning. There were there were things going on. And those are also my best, best teaching years. Those are the ones that keep me in the world of education. It's those like, we're gonna figure this out together, guys, because we are in it. And mm -hmm. you know, you made a, a comment about the Burmese speakers. And that first year I had like I don't know, six kids on my roster from Burma. I was like, this is great. This is fabulous. I'm going to put them all at a table. They're going to be besties. We're going to like just sit down and everything's going to be wonderful. Lo and we behold. Had, lo and behold, my friend, because we had a Burmese, like Burmese, Burmese speaker, Karen, Kareni, uh -huh. Chin. And these folks are literally, I mean, at physical war with each other at home. Yeah. So uh -huh. I'm just like, let's I didn't know, right? and be besties. Here's your glue stick. And it, did, it was not. It was not a thing. So... The thing, and then, you know, just, you know, the Thai kids who were born in Burma, but they're raised in the camps in Thailand and they had a completely different dynamic and didn't want anything to do with the Burmese kids. And I mean, it was just, it was a thing, but it's those sorts of, because of that, because of those situations, you are forced to jump in and really start to understand mm -hmm. more of what's going on. We're seeing the same thing now, right? We have our Afghan students and I will make a disclaimer here. I'm saying Afghan. So I hear a lot of folks say Afghani. So just keep in mind that Afghani is the currency or a rug. So if you're speaking about our Afghan students and families, please be mindful that we're using Afghan as the term for our people. Yes, so our Afghan uh, students, we have, say, um, the more urban Dari speakers. We have the Pashto speakers, which tend to be more rural, tend to have less access to education. And when those groups come together in our schools, we think we're going to put them all together because all of our Afghan students are going to be friends. Again, there are decades and decades and decades of conflict. So sitting them at the lunchroom table together is not going to solve that and can probably make a lot of things worse. So we're seeing a lot of conflict now between those groups or say our Afghan students who are Tajik speakers who are you know, in a whole, a whole different dynamic. Um, so we're seeing the same thing play out today. And because of that, we're forced to dig in and figure out a little bit more about, okay, how do we better understand these students and not go into this so blindly so that we can reduce some of those conflicts and barriers at the outset instead of going in retroactively to fix the situation. So how can we go about that? So it all comes back. To your point, Martha, we've come really, really far. Um, but like I said, in this case, there are still gaps and there always will be because cultures are are new. Culture, These cultures are new to us. So there's more learning. And when we become stuck in the rut of we know what's best for our families because this is the way it's done here and this is the quote unquote American way of doing school, um, then we're losing out. We're losing out mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. But more importantly, our kids are losing out. So curriculum has come much further. <sighs> Representation in our curriculum has come much further. Um, if you haven't had a chance, if you're an educator and haven't had a chance to utilize, they're called the cultural curriculum scorecards. It's Leah Peoples is the originator and I can leave a link to there, but you can go through um, your own curriculum. And I use this in my class classroom library. It's from uh, New York University. Um, and I have found some gaping holes in my own curriculum, um, some not related at all to newcomers. The holes in my classroom and home curriculum both had to do with uh, gaps in my LGBTQIA plus and inability disability. So those were my areas. I had all kinds of books on all different cultures, but I had like one on inability disability. 
Um, so those are some areas that I'm personally working to build out. So if you have not had a chance to utilize those scorecards, it does help if you're reviewing, uh, especially purchasing new curriculum to see um, what kinds of representation is showing up in that curriculum, um, how diverse the authorship is in there to make sure that students are seeing themselves reflected back at them in their text, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's good. Uh, Kelly, what about you? Well, I mean, I'll just say copy and paste to what Lewis just said because it was all Kelly's the same. a bandwagoner. Well, well, you know, what's funny is I, I was like, we've had such similar experiences because whenever there were students that came from the same country, you don't know until until you experience it. You're in that situation because, you know, I thought, well, if you're from Myanmar, but then, you know, you reflect back on it and you think, well, even if, even if you, so whenever I taught in Thailand, for example, just because you had two quote-unquote, you know, United States Americans together, that didn't mean we were just going to get along or necessarily, right. guess what, even speak the same language. Yes. Ooh, yeah. like yeah. what about that, right, though? You know, and so it's funny how we can be so quick to do something because, again, we go, you know, go back to like the beginning of this conversation. We check all those boxes for categorization purposes, how we departmentalize and just put you over here. But we never expect that or want that for ourselves. Yeah. So I think that's a real interesting Absolutely. thing that that I know that that even I have to remind myself of daily in in all the cultures in which I work. And so I want to say thank you also for even you know mentioning that. And I pulled up these cards on my other screen over here, so I'm excited to look at these cultural connections <laughs> cards. I'm I'm excited about that. But then you brought up also like the gaps that you were able to identify. So thanks for being vulnerable and being human here with us because this is like I always say, Planet Fitness judgment free zone right here. Okay. So we just get to like share with each other and learn from each other because if we don't expose ourselves, we don't know what we don't know. And there is a culture exactly. in the LGBTQ community, but there's also, so culture, I guess my point is, is not just based on geographical location. No, and that's you what were we're also, saying. It's, you can move into right. those communities. You can pick them mm -hmm. up. And because you've been a part of that community, you know, certain language, certain body gestures, certain Inside it's a different language in English, though. Yes. So there are certain things that you'll know that the rest of us won't because you have now moved into that culture. And if you've been able to have that sense of identity integration, then you can still be a part of that culture and a part of the culture you grew up in. And sometimes those cultures don't match up at all, right? They don't mm -hmm. even get along. And so you have to learn how to navigate, how to... That's where we get into code switching, too, right? That... You have to learn kind of what face to put on and, and how to move into each culture and come back out again. So, you know, through all of this, what I'm realizing is that the reason why I think that I'm just, again, so incredibly grateful for the opportunity that I had is that I was just able to be exposed to all of this. Like you said, we just had to jump into it, uh, you know, because of our students. They were right there. Absolutely. I want everyone to have that opportunity because it's fun. You get to learn more about yourself. We did have a lot of room for creativity, which was great. The The grocery store down the street from the school always knew me because I would come in the same day during my plan period to go get materials for our next science project. Because I, I just did hands-on activities so we could all participate. But because I was able to be immersed in those cultures within the four walls, I always said that being on the cruise ship was great, but I traveled more culture within four walls than I ever did on the ocean, you know, because you got to learn so much. How, how do we and even maybe connecting this back to these title funds, utilizing them this following year for educators, how can we give ideas in different ways to our teacher friends and leaders to use this funding or to advocate for the utilization of this funding to focus on what we've identified as the core of what we should focus on, which is culture overall, to help academic excellence at the same time? Absolutely. So a couple things here. One, I would always keep our trauma-informed moves in there if we have a, a pool for funding it's a consistent area for, for growth and i will that. say that there's a lot of siloing going on in our ml world right we're always kind of on the outskirts of things um but theoretically multilingual instruction should overlap with trauma-informed instruction should overlap with culturally responsive teaching and so we have this sort of triple Venn diagram, right? In my view, at the sweet spot, at the very center of all of those things is universal design for learning. 
That's mm -hmm. the sweet spot. So if we can, and if you're not familiar with UDL or Universal Design for Learning, that is an area that I would suggest looking into because if you apply some of your funding into um, training and development in that area, what UDL does essentially is reduce or eliminate barriers at the outset so that all students have access to learning. So this is great for MLs because your curriculum might not necessarily be designed for MLs, but if you use a universal design concept, you scan for barriers before you start, and then you work to erase or eliminate those barriers at the beginning. We think this is a lot of extra work, but it's not. It's actually far less work because if you're in the ML world, you're used to making modifications left and right. You're trained to make, to do, mod to modify, modify, modify. But universal design for learning takes that off. So you, instead of modifying, giving a modification here and a modification here and a modification here, we are just eliminating those barriers again at the outset. So universal design for learning really started in gaming and then moved over to building design. It wasn't, it's universal design. It moved into learning after. And if we think even about buildings, you know, we think about a ramp that is designed clearly with one demographic in mind. It's designed to increase accessibility for folks who have a physical limitation. But who else might use that ramp, right? Somebody who has a temporary disability, a mom carrying a pushing a stroller, a toddler learning to walk and can't do the stairs yet, someone who needs to tie their dog up outside, a skateboarder. It's creating pathways for all kinds of people to move into that building at the outset. So that's created when the building's being built. So UDL is really, again, if you haven't um, looked into it, um, and I'm happy if you want to reach out, I'll, I'll share more, but that would be an area that I would definitely focus funding or development in as Universal Design for Learning. Um, I will say also one of the challenges we run into in multilingual education is bringing on content level or content teachers. So again, when we're siloed out, we have kind of the... English language teachers or the ELD teachers in this bubble, and that's what they do. And then we have content teachers, not all, for those of you who are out doing your thing, thank you. But some content teachers are like, I got my thing, it's not broken, it doesn't need to be fixed, and I'm just cruising along. It's more work, I don't have time to do all of these like multilingual strategies, I'm just doing my thing. But for those folks as well, just again, having those pathways cleared at the beginning makes their content more accessible to multilinguals and decreases their workload as they move through that. Yeah. Why build stairs if everyone can use a ramp? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> or, you know, like closed captionings are another one. I mean, that's, it's genius and it's created at the outset, but who else uses closed captionings? I use them while I'm like laying down next to my husband at night because he does not want to hear TikTok and then like 11. On Netflix. <laughs> I even use it. <laughs> For, for me, is you know, my Arabic is I'm not proficient. I speak at the proficiency of like a fourth grader, like politics, deep level stuff, street slang, I'm out. But if we're watching TV and Arabi, then I need to be able to have They can benefit so many other folks for so many reasons. Um, and as we work together, we do a lot of professional developments with teams. And there's so many ahas that like, oh, I do this thing, but I do this only for my MLs. If I did this just for everybody, instead of modifying for my MLs, my students with visual needs could do this. My students with kinesthetic needs could do this. My students with autism can do this. My students with my high functioning students can take a spin on this. So it introduces all these elements of choice that just make it more open to everyone. So long story short, I would say if you want to utilize funding, parent engagement, trauma-informed instruction, and looking at UDL. Love it. 100%. And I appreciate you you explaining that so uh eloquently also just you know again uh in, in my conversations with other leaders and whenever we're discussing what we want or need to do for professional development i always like to kind of you know listen and then talk through that conversation but kind of bring it back around where if we by that like you were talking about by that design by building that ramp instead of the stairs if we do this with the mindset of connecting with all of our students um for all of them it's going to be a benefit for everyone. It's going to, you're going to connect to everyone and it's not going to be one more thing you have to do. It's and actually again, the thing you're supposed to do. Yes. And, and that's just like culturally responsive teaching, you're probably already doing it. Yes. And that's the thing. We're not having you do it. You have the kids sitting on headphones. If you have stations set up, if you have a choice menu where students can choose to show what they know and 
a visual way or as a presentation, or they can do it on slides, or they can, those, all of those are UDL strategies. So you're already doing it. And again, coming from the lens of a teacher, the last thing I ever want is more work on my plate. So <laughs> when we introduce things or when we recommend things, it's never to add more things to teachers' plates. Just like culturally responsive teaching, it's picking out what are you already an expert in? What do you already feel comfortable doing? What are you already great at? Wonderful. How can we make that work for everybody to minimize or decrease your workload and increase access for all the students who are participating? 1,000%. Martha. Yeah, I know that I feel like Luis has just really left us with a lot of great gems today. Um, I'm really thankful that there are people like you, Kelly and Luis, who are active in um, children's lives because that wasn't the case when I was growing up. Um, so this is really just like I'm kind of processing a lot of this right now. <laughs> um, but yeah, I I. It's exactly why I wanted to do this with Elise. I feel like she puts things very eloquently. She makes, she attaches real life situations that then make me understand like, okay, this funding is impacting a real kid and a real family, like in this way. And so um, just wanted to bring more awareness to this from someone who has lived, you know, the American education system without the support. So Thank you. I will maybe just finish with, I would say what really, um, if we're thinking about potential impacts and cuts to funding, specifically around Title III, the thing that stands out to me the most goes so far beyond education, right? So if we think about, I mean, even in your parents' case, uh, Martha, when we, um, when I talk about trauma, I don't use the word trauma. I always use the word transition shock because transition shock makes space for trauma. It makes space for post-traumatic stress. It makes space for high ACEs and all of those things, but it also captures culture shock. And so when we're talking about students um, who are new to the United States, we can't have a conversation about trauma and from my lens without also making space for culture shock. Hmm. And if we dig yeah. down into culture shock and when we have folks coming in, um, we, we think of it kind of like a teeter-totter, right? And so on one side, we have isolation, and on one side, we have adoption. And in adoption, you lean so far into the new culture, but it's at the expense of your heritage culture. And remember, we want that identity integration, right? So if you lean all the way in, you are dressing, talking, acting, you're refusing to speak your heritage language, you're pushing away. We have a lot of conflict with parents here where especially teens are pushing back against their parents. Many of our older folks fall into isolation where they lean so far into their heritage culture at the expense of the new one. And then it's really hard to make a home and make a space and feel connected. And so in both of those areas, we can have negative outcomes. What we're really aiming for is this kind of balanced spot on the teeter-totter, which we can think of as the place of integration. And so Title III funding helps that with all of the vast things that it provides, helps us help students find that place of integration where they can make sense of their L1 and L2, their C1 and C2 plus, um, that they can see the good and bad in both, and that they can be a part of both in a pro-social way. So when we're thinking about long-term impacts on our community, what happens to these students after they leave our schools? If we haven't helped students reach a pro-social place where they can be an active, integrated part into our communities, where they can be business owners and be workers and be entrepreneurs and be um, innovative thinkers, then that creates problems not right now. It creates problems in our communities in the future. So when we have these Title III funding cuts, which cut parent integration, we're going to start seeing it, which mm -hmm. cut language skills, which cut trauma-informed learning, then we're seeing that teeter-totter bouncing all over the place. And it is more and more challenging to reach that spot of integration. And that, to me, is the real challenge when we talk about cuts. It's not learning English right now because they will. It's what happens yeah. after they leave our classrooms. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. You could not have said that better in this whole time. I just yeah. keep getting more and more passionate and more and more fired up. 
truly. Um, and yeah. just because this is, this is important for everyone out there that we can, um, you know, I'm great, great conversation so much that, that we've been able to learn and take away, but just a, a true reminder that this is something that all of us as educators have got to make sure that we're trying to learn about as much as possible because it impacts all of our students in so many different ways. And our, our public school systems, our, our education systems, are the the heartbeat for our communities and our societies and we need to make sure that we are truly making space to listen and learn from the people whom we serve we have the privilege to serve and to learn from in this great nation of multicultural and multi-diverse um, with multi-different backgrounds as well and we all become better because of that so i really encourage everyone to to of course um try to stay informed as much as possible, but at the same time, to take it seriously. And it's only going to benefit you more, uh, both personally and professionally, I would say. Absolutely. Any last closing thoughts anyone would like to share? This has been so much fun. Thanks for hanging out, you two. Well, honestly, I've had the best time. Martha, thank you so much for being our co-host today. Um, it was really, really such a great time. Do you have you want to say anything to, to Luis? Yeah, thank you, Luis. Um, thanks for letting me kind of pick your brain about what's going on and um, just breaking down the importance of this for uh, those 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 who are listening. Wonderful. And Luis, I just want to thank you as well so much. Uh, I, you know, I told someone just the other day, the more that you learn, you basically learn just there's more that you don't know. And um, I'm just so grateful. <laughs> but I'm really grateful because um, I, I was definitely a student today and I got to learn so much from you and I was thankful I was able to share um, this conversation with you and with Martha. And so thank you all so much. So thank you for being here. We appreciate you. Thank you to all the listeners who have been with us this past hour or so. Um, again, just a reminder, we will have all the information for Luis in the summary of this episode for all the links. And um, special shout out to our producer, Mike Overholt. Thank you so much, our co-host today, Martha Caramali, and then Luis again, Luis Eliafori. Thank you so much for being here, enriching all of our lives. And thank you for helping us making so many cultural connections today. I appreciate you. I wish you all the best. And to all of our educators, thank you for your service. We love you. Bye.